previously on the Tony Kornheiser Show. And they said, okay, would you like a red or a white? No, the white. Mark Tui uh, gets them right. sent down from Rochester. Right. He made me one the other day. They're tremendous. Veal and pork. I, I had no idea. I said, yeah. I had millions of hot dogs in my life. I nope. said, uh, red or a white? The lady said, if you want a regular hot dog, you can go anywhere. If you want a white hot dog, yeah. it only gets served here in Rochester. I said, well, sure. give me the white. That's and throw the meat sauce on it, and it was fabulous. It's great. Man. No, it's great. Mark cooked them the other day. It was, it was absolutely great. We've talked a lot about golf in this segment. It's made me very happy. The Tony Kornheiser Show is on now. On the subject of Rochester, New York, from our friend Joe Bianchino in Latham, New York. On behalf of all upstate New Yorkers, I'm writing because after your conversation about the PGA at Oak Hill, I can't stop myself anymore. I know most people think upstate New York is anything between Yankee Stadium and Canada, but please (laughs) don't lump lump us all in together. Rochester is in western New York or maybe, maybe central, but it's not Albany. It's not Saratoga. It's not Schenectady. It's not upstate. Buffalo is western. Binghamton is southern tier. Lake Placid is north country. Syracuse is central. Kingston is Hudson Valley. West Point is downstate, and I am, and I know this, the worst. But like I said at the start of risking a new mailbag game, where do you think upstate begins? I cannot stop myself anymore. It's good to know. The um, PGA, we will get to the PGA with Chuck Culpepper. But there is golf news that we need to talk about that I found out yesterday in a conversation with the socialite. The real major down in South Carolina? No, no, no. So I'm going to give you a second surprise then. Okay. Alan Bubis, over the weekend, and he buried the lead because we were talking about other things first. He was down in Florida. He was playing Grove 23, and on the seventh hole, he got a hole in one. (laughs) Alan got a hole in one, and he said, you know what they do if you get a hole in one here? And this is a new club that's owned by Michael Jordan. I said, Jordan gives you a car because he can afford that? (laughs) No, they put your name on the flag. There's one other person on the flag at the seventh hole, Justin Thomas. <laughs> Pretty <laughs> good company. <laughs> there's Justin Thomas and the socialite. That's so great. So we are, that's just thrilling. It really is. What were you going to say? Uh, so right now we have friends of the show, Colin St. Maxons and Billy oh, Peel, who yeah. have made it through stroke play qualifying at the USGA, which is a pretty weighty uh pretty weighty group the usga four ball down at uh down at kiowa they're playing the river course in cacique and they've made it to match play that's great that's great and we know them both beat out tony romo and you have played with them both a thousand times can't root for them uh, enough yeah and so we're very happy about that we're going to be on a monday wednesday friday schedule this week by the way um and we're doing a show on Memorial Day, correct? Sure, right? yeah, because yeah. but Michael was going to play in a golf tournament, and he may not be on the show depending on the tee time. Okay, Mike's going to play for me because what I found out. Hi, Pete. Hmm? Just saying hi to Pete. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, but with Creedon and Courtney. with Courtney and with Arch, uh, what didn't I didn't fa- see it. Don't want to see it. <laughs> <laughs> what I found out was that there's a PTI show. Yes. And Matt Kelleher said, we've had the PTI show the last four years on Memorial Day. I said, oh, I, <laughs> I didn't know. Um, okay. We're going to get, a, if we have time with Chuck Culpepper, a little bit into the Preakness. But I think Andy Beyer, I think Andy Beyer did say that he thought Mage would win. But he also said National Treasure would be somebody you could play with Mage in some exact or trifecta or something like that. So I want to give him credit. Michael made both planters and put dirt in one planter with 
three tomato plants labeled as tomato plants. And we have owls. We have owls to hopefully scare, which we will perch on the planters. Yes. And, and, but only one planter has dirt. Yes, um, I'm not, buy, I'm not to... the best in terms of visual uh, spacing, so I picked up six bags of dirt, which seemed like a lot, or at least lot. my back would tell you that that six would be enough. Six bags, like 20 pounds each? No, these were, I did not go to your Home Depot. I oh. went to a local Ace store, uh, where to even make it out of the store with six bags was quite the feat with uh, three kids in tow. <laughs> I, would get, I would go to Home Depot. I will get you, yes, you have not seen the price of this dirt either. This was the expensive dirt. Why was it the expensive dirt? Well, you gave me a directive. I had to go uh, to I'm what happy was closest. To, I'll, yeah, I'll write you a check for whatever it yeah, is. I'll take care of the other plant. Don't okay, worry. Okay, all right. <laughs> Speaking of golf, and I want to get to this, I played in an event over the weekend at Rehoboth Beach. It's called the Talon Cup. I guess talons are, you know, the symbol of the Rehoboth Beach golf course is an eagle, and eagles have talons, and it's the Talon Cup. It's an event in which... There are six teams in each subdivision, in each flight, six teams. You play five nine-hole matches, 45 holes in two days, and then the winner of your flight goes on to a shootout for the overall winner. Five nine-hole matches, 45 holes. I was in a cart, so it was okay. I mean, I'm old. It was okay. I was in the worst group by handicaps, deservedly so. Steve Rose and I were third from the bottom in the entire field. There were, I guess, about 80 people playing, something like that. I think there were, I thought there were more than 18 groups, but maybe there were not. Maybe there were 18 groups times four is 72. And maybe double up some of the par fives. Yeah, I'm not, I don't know. It moved very smoothly. It was very nice. I was very glad I played. Played in the rain on, on Saturday. Rained for the first nine holes. Did you go with the full tan rain suit? I had everything on. I had, I had a uh, Rehoboth Beach windbreaker type thing that was a member guest prize about 10 years ago. And I had Mizuno um, rain pants. I looked clownish. I mean, I always look clownish. And I can't play. I stick. I, 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 need, I can't tell you how terrible I am. If it's not on a tee, I don't get it in the air. Even though at the range, I'm great. I am all world on the range. The course, something psychological happens. It translates physically. I stick. That's not the point. In order to advance, the way it was, you got a point for if, if you won the hole, you got one point. Zero points if you don't win the hole. It's just winning the hole. And the cumulative amount of points in your flight moves on to the championship round. Steve and I played 45 holes. We won five. That's all we won. We didn't, and we didn't win any match. We didn't get any points. We were DFL, kids. We finished with a half a point because we tied the other group, Dave and Mike. We tied them on Saturday morning, so you get a half point if you split. But we lost 4-1, 4-1, 4-1, 5-1 in the matches we lost. And we honestly, we didn't play badly. We, like on, on Friday afternoon, I shot 41. I played really well That's great. on Friday afternoon. And I lost to a guy, Terry Lynn, who careered it. 
Amazing. And he was getting strokes, and he shot 37. That's one over. He careered it. Yeah. I was throwing him in. You know, you end up, oh, we lost to some guy, again, a guy getting strokes off me, which is insane. Yeah, I feel like the handicap system would have something to say about this. Yeah, yeah, this guy, Greg, a guest, getting strokes off me, who one of his shots from 85 yards hit the stick. All right, <laughs> come on, I'm lucky to hit the green. He hit the stick. So we, we came up against better players with strokes playing well. Now, you just you tip your hat. There's nothing else you can do. Check their score history to see what tees they've been playing from. You know, I played the way up tees. I played the greens. And it, I, from now on at Rehoboth, I'm going to try and play a combination of white and green because some of the greens are too close. Some of the green tees are too close. And plus, it's like... The green tees may as well have a sign of a 90-year-old person in a chair. It's, you That's know, a peach, Dad. You know, it's bad. It was bad, I have to say. But I love playing. And then I came home, and I watched um, the PGA. I didn't watch the basketball. I watched some of the Nats. I did the Nats. Nats won the series, didn't they, from Detroit? Yeah, I, I'm not going to lie. After that first game, I stopped watching and was sort of all in yeah. on the golf. No, they won the series. Uh, Josiah Gray pitched well yesterday. That was our favorite first baseman. He got an RBI yesterday on an out. On a ground out, right? On a ground out. Yeah. So he's got 12 still RBI. Still has one. He has only singles and a home run. That's all he has. <laughs> it's only singles. The Nats, the reason the Nats are no good is they don't have, and I know Lane Thomas has hit some home runs, They're and I know the- Joey Manessis is capable of hitting home runs. They don't have a home run threat. They really don't. So they get they single you to death, right? Yeah. That's how they score. So they I need know, four singles. I know you're going to get to uh, Chuck on this, but are you oh, going to yeah. give me a little bit of run on the PGA, or should I just wait, no, no, wait please, quietly? Please say anything you want to say about it, because I watched all of it, and I will just say this, and I'll say this to Chuck as well. Sometimes there are people who win tournaments, and sometimes there are people who lose tournaments. Brooks Kepka won the tournament in great aid because for the second day in a row, the bunker at 16 or, yep. 15, or 16 trapped the ball by a leader. Corey Connors knocked him out of the tournament on Saturday. Victor Hovland knocked him out of the tournament yesterday. So Victor Hovland lost, and then came back birdie birdie. And, you know, but Brooks Kepka won. Yeah, and I would say this is a tournament that he won over the period of six-plus months in terms of coming back from injury. The decision last year after the U.S. Open to go to the Live Tour, uh, sort of hitting rock bottom with what the Netflix series Full Swing revealed about his psyche, wondering if he'd really ever be competitive again. And then the back and forth of, will he, won't he? Will he be the first player who wants to come back, who begs to come back? And then seeing sort of the Iceman, the the major specialist, lose the 54-hole lead at the Masters, even though there's a bit of an asterisk there just because they were still playing the third round when he goes back with Rom, and they have that two-shot swing on the the first hole when they're still putting out. So you had a tournament that was rain-affected, but not rain-redirected, in that Saturday was an all-time difficult day, which is where you start to see those tan rain suits, the, the backwards hats, and... He got the, you know, by where he was on the leaderboard, he got the better end of that day. But the rain did not did not ruin part of the field, did not really direct what the winning number was going to be. And you had a beautiful Sunday at a course that over the last beautiful. half century has done everything it can to get back into major championships where you looked at a couple of lesser than PGAs. And those tournaments might have been why you had this in May. Minus 10 is, is, is not killing the course at all. Not killing the course at all. It was a... A hard course, a fair course, 
Brooks Kepka won it. He went out and made a lot of putts. We saw him at the uh, at Kiowa down against Phil where he was missing short putts, and all of a sudden you started to question what you saw uh, at some of those other New York majors. He's got five majors. Three of them in the state five. of New York. Yeah. So five puts him, Five is the threshold where you start to look, and Great. it's the other side. All-timer. He's with, uh, he's with Seve, and he is with, uh, I believe it's also... Peter Thompson. Nelson. And Byron six, Nelson. Six is the one. When Phil got to six, you start to say that is the, uh, the big separator there. Uh, but you, you looked at a tournament where... It started to feel like it was an accessory to the scripting of full swing in terms of you can already see how they're going to play these uh, these majors against and with each other. Uh, you looked at the pairings yesterday. You had Justin Thomas playing with Phil Mickelson. You have the return of Phil and Bones who have an awkward fist bump at the end. Phil who's giving cryptic messages all week about, well, I know a lot of things. They're not going to say it right, right here, but I'm happy that it's beginning to come out and all will be held accountable after he has the most awkward photo shoot from the dinner uh, earlier in the week. He's become a weird guy. Bryson DeChambeau yes. with his Ryder Cup umbrella saying, don't forget me, don't forget me. Well, I don't... Pick me as a captain's pick. <laughs> I, I've got to say, this is something we probably won't get into with Chuck, but I will say this. When somebody from the Saudi Tour wins a major, and when others, as they did at the Masters, place very high up in the finals, you know, in the top 10, top five, to hold a Ryder Cup without them seems wrong to me. Seems wrong. I'm I'm fine with separate tours if that's what you want. And I think that Saudi money is something that I would like to think I wouldn't take. It's never been offered, so I don't know. But these are great players. They're great players. And the Ryder Cup is something they should be eligible for. Or do you think no? No, I think this is tough because you looked at it from a position of strength, which is what the American side was. Those players, you could lose some of them and still figure a way. Like, we'll, we'll fill out those spots. Yeah. And those players were not as as sort of, uh, sort of true to the identity of what that event is. And you look at the European side, and they've always been a little bit under the thumb of the PJ Tour uh, in terms of alliances that they've had to make. Uh, you look at Michael Block, who's very telling, saying, I used to wake up and watch a lot of European Tour of, uh, golf. I'd see Colin Montgomery. He was the man. And when the European side loses players like Ian Poulter, who would be who's one, of those, one of those Fred Couples type figures who's going to rally the troops, be an assistant forever, and be his own captain. And then you start to look at how they were using that as a, as a bargaining chip against people like Henrik Stenson. Uh, they were in the much tougher position, and those players had been suspended, versus some of the American yeah. players who they paid their dues before they put the T in the ground for the first live event. So they're kind of in this gray area where they could be picked. Uh, you know, even though it'd be really hard to get in on their own sort of playing merits because they were only getting points via, you know, via these majors. Just think you want the best players in the world playing. Yeah. At some point, you want them to come together. They don't have to play together every week. They don't have to. But in events that are meaningful, like majors and Ryder Cup, maybe even President's Cup, I think you want them. We'll take a break. Michael Wilbon will join us when we return. I'm Tony Kornheiser. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. This is Jessica Mitchell. She has graced our show many times before. Her dad sends in stuff. Um, She's returning soon to Nashville for songwriting sessions. This is called All the Way Down. It's 
it's almost always the women. We get women who send us music and you just go, wow. Yes, wow. How come she's not making $50 million? Right. I mean, how tough is it to make $50 million? And the answer is it's really tough. It's really tough to make $50 million. Michael Wilbon joins us now. Let's start with Jim Brown. Uh, a very complicated life. Your thoughts on Jim Brown. I, I hope we have the chance to do it today on trails on PTI. Yeah. Yeah, Tony. Um, I, I'd known uh, for a little bit of time that Jim Brown wasn't well. We, had, we have a close family friend in D.C. in McLean whose family's been close to Jim Brown, uh, the dad of uh, one of Cheryl's best friends. And uh, so we, 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 we sort of know him because they're still tight. And uh, it was one of the, you know, there have been so many in the last four years, it seemed to me, starting, you know, about the time of the pandemic or a little bit before, of just the iconic people that I had grown up. Um, either they, they might not have been heroes, but something close to that at some point, maybe sometimes as an adult. And Jim Brown is one of those people that I, you know, he's a mythic figure. And I got to to know Jim Brown. Um, covering the NFL when I did, Jim Brown was still in Cleveland a lot. Um, he would be around. Like, he, he would be in places, and you could just – I was terrified to go up and say hello to him because he was so – you know, people talk about the – I don't know if it was intimidating. There was just such an aura about him. And uh, But I'll tell a quick story that in 1990, when were the, the riots in L.A.? 91? Around then, late 80s, 91. early 90s, yeah. No, there were definitely not early 90s. 91, I'm going to say it was, and the Rodney King verdict and all the aftermath of that. And George Solomon um, said to me at the time, listen, I think there's a story in Southern California to be written that ties into this about the young men who were involved in the all of the stuff in L.A. What were they doing as teenage boys? Were they playing sports? Are their opportunities cut? for civic reasons, just go out. If there's no story, they're fine. If there is, I think there is, you know, see what's up. So I did that. And the first or second day I was here in L.A., um, I, I get a, a, a piece of information that Jim Brown is going to have this thing, summit at his house in, in the Hollywood Hills, and that the Crips and the Bloods are going to be at his house. And even as I say it now, and I told you this story, of course, the other day, it sounds apocryphal. It sounds like, what are you talking about? The Crips and the L.A. was on fire. You remember. People, a lot of mm -hmm. people, you got to be at least 40 now to remember this. L.A. was on fire. What do you mean they're going to be at his house? They're going to be at Jim, Jim Brown's house. So I call, I, you know, people in the NFL. It, it, it's probably the David Cornwell um, or the commissioner. You know, Roger Goodell, who helped, who helped me, and I said, can you help me get in touch with Jim Brown? Here's why. And, I, you know, this is pre-cell phone. And so I got to be in my hotel room, and I get a call, and it's Jim Brown. And he knew who I was because I had met him before. And he said, yeah, you know how to get to my house? <laughs> no, sir. And I'm sure I said, sir, it was Jim Brown. And he said, uh, here's the direction." There's no GPS. He gives you directions turn by turn to his house, and it's right by the Hollywood sign in the Hollywood Hills. So I drive up. I get there, and there's, you know, there's all these people lined up, people getting in. 
And I'm thinking there's got to be a uniformed guy, a uniformed police person. There's got to be somebody on the door. How do you have the Crips and the Bloods in your house? And there's no metal detector. There's no nothing. And Jim Brown says to people coming in, if you you carrying something, you put it down. You lay it down over here. You don't bring anything into my house. You don't have that. And that was it. That was it. The most dangerous people at the time in Southern California who are part of the reason that the city's ablaze, they just, because Jim Brown said, you don't bring this into my home. He had like the moral authority and guys looked at him like he would kill them and they did not do it. And I talked to Jim Gray. I talked to Jim Gray. Jim Gray called me and he said, do you remember the night we were both at Jim Brown's house? I'm like, yes, I remember vividly. And we were checking with each other to make sure we remembered it correctly. And Jim Gray said something to me, Tony, that really lets you know. Jim Gray said, I was so terrified that something could go sideways at any moment that I stood by the door the whole night. And Ted Koppel's there with a new crew, a news crew. And Jim Brown would say, listen, this is my man from the Washington Post. He's doing a story. You need to help him. And I met the people. Little Monster is one of the ones I remember his name. Little Monster was one of them. But all these people were there, Tony, and their arms were put down. And they had this meeting at Jim Brown's house. And on the back patio, the house was relatively modest for where it was, is. But from the back patio, you could walk out and you could look down on Los Angeles. And when you look down, you could see still Los Angeles burning. You could see smoke over here, and there's riot stuff over there, and there's police activity over there. You look down on Los Angeles. And I just remember it, it, is, it is maybe the most surreal night of my life. It's certainly up there. And Jim Brown conducted this, and he told people they were going to stop. That was going to be it. And this was early in his American program. And, but the gang violence, he said, this is going to be over. And you know what, Tony? For a while, it was over. And, and, you know, I don't know that there's any chronicling, even though there were, we, there were media people there, in the moment that necessarily credited Jim Brown with that. But that's what happened. And yeah. it was, you know, in subsequent years when I was around them some more, there was just, you know, this presence, this presence that, that Tony, there's, there's no one like that now. Now, people don't, don't know, don't tell me LeBron James has that or Michael Jordan has that. They don't. By the way, Jim, Jim Brown and Michael Jordan born on the same day, I believe, uh, February 17, I mm. believe. Uh, how ironic is that? Um, and... You know, I remember I remember asking him when I got to know him later. I, have a, I posted a picture, which is on my Instagram account, that when I went to Cleveland until just recently, the thrill was not to see LeBron James. Of course, it, it was for Matthew and Jordan because they would go with me in the spring when they were out of school for the finals. It was because Jim Brown was there. And I could go over I, Jim, I got a hug from Jim Brown. And I remember one time Don was like, he was mesmerized. You know Jim Brown? Yeah. And I said to him, the night that we came to your house, like, like how do you have, 
how do you get the Crips and the Bloods to to, to do this? And he just he said that's what that's what was going to happen. I wasn't afraid of it. Clearly, he wasn't. And while there were law enforcement people who were part of his community and were in the home, they weren't uniformed. They weren't identified. Nobody knew. I didn't know. And it was just, he was, it was an amazing life. Like you said, Tony, it was complex. Uh, it was complex. Yeah. And I don't pretend to understand all of it. Yeah, that was a bad thing. I mean, there was violence towards women. Um, it was, yeah, was, I, accused, I will say this about Jim Brown. It's my own personal observation. And I knew the name as a child because he's the greatest athlete to ever come from Long Island, Manhasset High School and mm-hmm. Syracuse University. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that if I was ever going to be frightened of someone, it would have been Jim Brown. <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah. mean, Jim Brown yeah. exuded a power and a confidence that I've never seen in anyone else. I've not. Agree. Yeah. You know. No, 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 nor have I. I've not. And, and you know, I, 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 yes, Tony, yes. And, and, and then it was for different reasons than, say, I, you know, if you were around Sonny Liston, who would have been one of those people. I've heard yes. the chap talk about that. That's different. different. That was different. different totally different. And, and, and later, Sonny Liston yeah. was a bad man. There was no reason to think that Jim Brown was a bad man at that point. No, no. And, and so, you know, in the, in the, two, in the since 2015, these instances where I got to see him and I took, he said, is this your son? And I said, yes, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Said, I, want to, I want to talk to him. Again, we're talking 2016, 17. And I, had, I posted the picture of Jim Brown and Matthew. I mean, I said, I said, you know, Jim, I don't do this, but I'd love to have a picture. He's like, of course we're going to have a picture. And I have a picture right there of Jim Brown and Matthew and me. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, and, um, as you become a dad, I mean, I have my own story with this. This has to do with Red Auerbach. I introduced Michael to Red Auerbach, and Michael, 10 seconds later, says, who's that old guy? Like, <laughs> right, I, I right. wouldn't expect Matthew to have any sense of Jim Brown at all. None. Zero. Mm-hmm. Can't. Mm-hmm. You do. He no, can't. No, he was nine. No. Or what, you know, he right. was eight years can't. old. Can't. But, but it was great, because Jim Brown said, I tell you, you're doing, you're doing some stuff, right? You're doing some work. Yes, 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 sir. So I'm doing a stand-up feet away, and Jim Brown says, let me, let me talk to you, son. And Jim Brown sits nearby in the, fr- in the front row. After a game, well, you know, Matthew's in his Steph Curry jersey, and he talks to Matthew, which, of course, I, I said to Matthew a couple of days ago, do you remember? And he said, I, 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 I sense that I know who he is, and I know why you think what you think of him. I, but not really. I'm like, of course not. You, you, no, you were, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean the same. But, it, 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 you know, I think, Tony, you hear about you, – you Jim Brown was a varsity basketball player. He had four. He had four letters at um, Manhasset and at Syracuse. Uh, he's the greatest lacrosse player who ever lived. He might be the greatest athlete. He might be of the all time. The Dick Shap always felt Shap always Dick felt that Jim Brown, who he played against yeah. in lacrosse in high school, yeah. Shap always felt that Jim Brown was the greatest athlete. The greatest. When you athlete. hear the testimony from Sam Huff and Sonny Jurgensen, and, and when you when you hear them talk about him, which you and I did yeah. not on for an interview, just sitting around, like we would sit around and we'd have occasion to listen. And they talked about him. They talked about him with awe, with an awe, that there was no one else they talked about. And I'm talking about they're all alive and men in their prime of life, in their, you know, know, 40s, 50s, 60s. They would talk about Jim Brown, 
and you're like, my God, this guy, this guy is, he's a different dude. And so, you know, that death, his death, I don't know, it just, it hits, it hits pretty hard. Um, because you wonder how many, how many people, how many of his peers, how many people in any sport, we start looking up ages, um, Greeny and, and I did at, at Jeff Jacobs' house that night. We had dinner. We started looking up ages, and Billie Jean King is 80. Yeah. Sandy you Koufax, know? Willie Mays, Billie Sandy Jean Koufax King. Sandy Koufax is 85 yeah. or 87. Mays is 90. Mays, okay. I mean, you know, how yeah. many? And so it's, it's uh, you know, you guys like us, stuff like this hits. Absolutely. In a different way than if you're 35. I think I got a note that uh, Ernie Davis, Ernie Davis started the 44 tradition for the best running back at Syracuse. Not the best each year, like only all-time greats that they thought would be great got 44. I think I read wow. that he died on the same, Jim Brown died on the same day that Ernie Davis died. Some of this stuff, it's, 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 it's just difficult to believe, you know, that makes you sort of just take notice. Again, like the like the birthday with, yeah, with Jordan. With Jordan and I, yeah. I did not talk to Michael about it. I should. And I, I probably will in the next you know day or so. Um, and again, it's not the interview. It's just sort of to uh, because Jordan is old enough now. He's sixty years old. He he has enough time under his belt to have had these feelings, and you know they knew each other, of course, and they probably knew each other well. And I guarantee that Jordan's father felt the way you know, about Jim Brown, sort of the way that the guys of that age felt it was conveyed to, to us. And, and, and wow, did you ever, did you get to interact with him? No, no, I never did. Never did. Sort of it was, uh, but I always knew, you know, that, that this guy was different. And I do remember, yeah. I remember Sam Huff, who was a Hall of Fame middle linebacker, one of the toughest guys of all time. Yeah. Saying that when he tackled Jim Brown, it hurt him. It hurt yeah. him. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Jim Brown could run around you, run through you. It didn't matter. Yeah. It hurt him. Yeah. All right, better you that we didn't talk the, about yeah. basketball. Good, because the basketball series stink. It's three zero. No good. It's it's, it's it's one line. It's it's. Uh, so which one is more shocking to you? Uh, Miami is more shocking to me by a lot. I mean, I thought Boston. The way Boston beat Philadelphia, I just thought. Yeah, they're ready now. They're geared up. It's more right. shocking. I mean, the other one's not shocking. I mean, the other team's really better. The other team's a one seed, yeah. Yeah, it's really better. This is this is an, yeah. an, an eight. This is an eight taking out a two. I mean, take just taking them out. Taking them out. Do you, do you, do you, do you blow up the Celtics? No. They're too good. No. Really? No. Um, They've been together. This is like their sixth postseason together. I'm, you I'm you may have to go get a coach. You may have to. They've, they've had, you know what? Wow. I don't want to go too deeply into this, but it may no. be that Udoka got him to the finals, and, and this kid looked like he knew what he was doing, but yeah. boy, it's been tough in the playoffs. They've been terrible at home. They've been terrible. They're under 500 at home. Come they on. It's so bad. It turns out that, that Marcus Smart line, and the Marcus Smart line, when they asked him about his coach, uh, Joe, about a week ago, two weeks ago, said, yeah, you know, he's getting ripped, as he should. <laughs> well, <it's, laughs> and I'm like, okay, yeah. this, you know, as, as a newspaper person, there's a headline here and there's a yeah. story here. 
But one of the stories is, I, I, I said this the other day, I'd have fired him after game two in the locker room. After oh, game two. You can't do it in said, the middle of the playoffs. <laughs> yeah, 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 I can. They do it in the NHL. They do. At that point, you could see that the Boston Celtics players – they don't believe in him. No. They don't believe in, in what he's doing. And he said it last night. You probably yeah. this happened too late. He yeah. said about two a.m. Or time. I, 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 there's a there's a disconnect. Can't. And the questions were the follow up questions were asked. Why is there a disconnect? And he said, I don't know. I've got to do a better job. No, 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 no. We're past that. At two o, I would have said, you know what, Brad Stevens, come on down. Yeah, by, he by could. He thing. could do You're it. You're going to come down. He could do it. All right, I'll talk to you later. All right, Tom. Michael Wilbon, boys and girls. We're going to come back. We're going to talk all about the PGA and maybe a little bit about the Preakness with Chuck Culpepper. I'm Tony Kornheiser. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. One more time. This is Jessica Mitchell. This is a song called What I'm Trying to Leave Behind. Give them kindness. Follow your heart. Be afraid. Do it anyway and always push on the start. Don't talent. sweat the small stuff. If Jessica Mitchell or her dad or anybody out there has got a dad or a mom who wants to send in your stuff, Michael, how do they do it? Send us your music by emailing it to jingles at com. And if I could just add, if you're a dad or friend or a brother or cousin and you want to send the music in, you actually have to get them to give us their approval as well. So make sure you loop them in. But please do, by all means. Just wonderful. Chuck Culpepper joins us now. There is so much to talk about with the PGA. So much to talk about. And I will get to Michael Block, but I think I'm going to get to the winner first. Um, the, The tournament turned on a sand trap on 16. I thought it might turn on an internal out of bounds on six. And yesterday, um, Kepka bogeyed six and then bogeyed seven and let Hovland back in. Hovland never went ahead of him, but he got back in it. But ultimately, it turned on that bunker in 16. Can you describe that for people? I mean, Corey Connors and Victor Hovland went out on that shot. It's really strange. It's it's it went seven. I think it was seventeen feet nine inches was what it said on the official uh, you know r- record of that shot. Mm-hmm. And um, it went a nine iron from the middle of a fairway bunker on the right side of the fairway and smacked straight into the wall of the bunker, which would have been at the end, which would have been the beginning of the trip of that ball out of the bunker, but never made it out and just just kind of died like a dud and got buried there. It's really something. I mean, these two guys were total contenders, um, had led at some point during the tournament, went out on that. Now, I think Brooks Kepka won it, and I think Brooks Kepka redeemed himself for what happened at Augusta. 
And I think by winning this, not only does Brooks Kepka put himself in unbelievably elite company in the history of golf, but I think he changes the course of the sport because of his affiliation with the Saudi Tour, and I wonder your thoughts about this. I think, for me, it was bigger to see him become Brooks Kepka again. He mm-hmm. was one of the great finishers between 2017 and 2019, one of the great finishers in sports. You know, you would go to people like Novak Djokovic, you know, and try to compare there. It was so, he was so good at it, and it's hard to do. And then with a PGA 2020 in August in Harding Park in San Francisco, uh, PGA at Kiowa 2021 that Phil Mickelson won, a little bit Torrey Pines U.S. Open 2021, and the 23 Masters. He sort of couldn't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there were injuries involved and or knee injury involved and a recovery from knee surgery involved and all of it. You don't know how much that played in, but it was baffling. And the one who won yesterday just never even looked anywhere close to ruffled. You know, just as, as close as it got and as he's carrying along that one-shot lead for long Long period. Mm-hmm. Just never even, you know, looked like it. And that to me is very, very compelling when somebody is like that. I think it's rare. And so for me, that overrode the idea about live and what, you know, big moment for live. Someone sent me an email comparing it to the Jets winning the, the Super Bowl three, you know, for a new, new league. Um, I'm not sure there. I'm not sure it'll have much of any effect on live and whether people watch it more. Um, I think there's a chance it'll, it will have no ripples at all because the PR there has not been very strong. You'd have to say. So um, I was much more into the idea of that, that Kepka was back than I was that he represented a new tour. Kepka has won five majors. There's only 20 people in the history of golf who've won five or more majors. Uh, they may not be the most scintillating majors, but, you know, because three of them are PGAs, but he's still relatively young. He's got a lot more in him. He did yesterday. He had a huge birdie on 10, which he needed to hold his lead over Hovland because he bogeyed 11. 12, I thought, was a turning point because um, he birdied 12, and Hovland with a putt inside him did not birdie 12, and it went back right. to two, and then you get to 16, and and then the, the tournament is over at 16. They'll give Hovland credit. He birdies 17 and 18. But the, the tournament is over at that point. I'm going to respectfully disagree with you a little bit here because I, too, thought of this very early yesterday, that the Jets winning Super Bowl three is the most important, in my mind, the most important win in the history of professional football most important because it validated the merger it allowed people who watch the AFL to say after that we're as good as them there was no sense that the Super Bowl was diminished by having to play against an inferior league and I'm not saying by any means Chuck that the Saudi tour and I always call it the Saudi tour and not live is as good as the PGA tour but it calls out to me now in this regard it says to me they got to play all the majors. Don't give me world ranking points. You got to have them at the majors, and I think you have to have them at the Ryder Cup and the President's Cup too. And if you want to disagree, please do. No, I don't disagree with that. I, I think they. I've always thought they, they should be at the majors. You know these these players, and I, I think 
the way it works now. Uh, took a few of them out this time. You know, some of the ones more marginal, but and yeah, I, I just I just wonder if it'll will mirror the Jets because it's much more of a. Oh, I don't think it will. I, I don't think it gives equity. To the soil, if pe- because you know it, it's different. If people don't watch it on television and don't care about it and don't understand these stupid teams, then no, it'll it'll never be a rival to the PGA Tour. But some of its players is what I'm saying should be eligible for everything, right? Yeah, and I think I think one thing that this did do, and the Masters did it too, with with Mickelson and Kepka so close to the top, is it showed us that the idea of preparing through live that live does not you know quash your your preparation chances for these majors i think that that notion that it was going to be a something that because it's 54 holes and no cut that it would take the edge off of you i think that that maybe has been ruled out now yeah i mean i did think after the masters that maybe you had to play 72 those dogs are barking or something you had to play 72 but i mean kepka kepka proved it Kepka was robotic, you know, and I say that with all sorts of admiration. Kepka kept going, and when he had a bad shot, when he went in the water, you know, he hit the next shot great on. You know what I mean? He was a pro. Yeah, he was yeah. a right. Didn't you feel that he was commanding? Absolutely, and that 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 one from 136 yards out in the fairway. I think it's 13 or 14 where he the par five where he, you know, wrecked his approach into that and wound up 61 feet back from the cup yeah and then two putted with a downhill 10 footer for for the par i mean that was the that was the kind of thing that just shows you that he again is is one of the best finishers we have and he doesn't win other than majors what's he got how many other tournaments does he have five he does have two live victories, which I believe I, is in first place. I don't, I don't know that. Means. <laughs> I don't know where they are or what it means. You know, don't have, I don't have any idea. Let's get to Michael Block, because although if you're a sports writer, you got to lead with Kepka and the winner, boy, oh, boy, you sure do want to write Michael Block, too. I don't know how he wasn't weeping through the last four holes. And as great as that hole-in-one was, and that was – He's, you know, everybody will remember that forever. That third shot on 18 was unbelievable. It, it was unbelievable. The hole-in-one always has some luck in it. You know, that third shot didn't have any luck in it. That was just some real highbrow, way up there skill. Well, so and I'm was- sitting there watching this with my wife, and I say, he's dead. He's dead. He's going to double. And she just looks at me. I go, he's got to go over a bunker on a short side. He's either in the sand or he's 30 feet past, 40 feet past, and he hits it to seven feet. And you go, oh, my God. Right, Chuck? Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah you do. And the way, it just, the way it just plopped down on the fringe there, right, probably in the only good place you could have it land, and then it just obediently kind of rolled up to seven feet. Was just it was a marvel, an absolute marvel. So you you did a great story on him, and he was talking about what a thrill it was for him to play with Justin Rose. How about to be hugged by Rory McIlroy in that way? I know. And then you saw when he learned he was going to play with, alongside McIlroy, and um, and he was wowed by that again. And that whole thing about 
for three holes on Saturday, he didn't look at Justin Rose's face because he knew it would freak him out. <laughs> he was playing next to somebody he had much. He said, so I looked at the shoes. I looked at the shoes for the first three holes. But, you know, and then factor in that when he, that quote he had yesterday about when he makes the hole in one and McElroy's already 20 yards, headed 20 yards up the track to the hole and turns around and comes all the way back to give him a big hug. I mean, that was just, you, you, it's, it's impossible, it's implausible, but it's, you know, it's impossible that, that all that happened. No, that was great. That was great. I'm going to uh, beg your indulgence on just one other topic here. Your thoughts on Baffert winning with National Treasure. Um, first time back in a Triple Crown race in a couple of years and winning what yeah. that does. What, what do you think that does for the sport, bearing in mind that one of his own horses died earlier in the day racing? So I think the sport is plagued by this, of course, by the two Triple Crown legs so far, having deaths as a... Um, you know, as the major story of them, probably. I think, um, I wonder if it's going to be around in a hundred years, uh, or if it'll slowly sort of fade, dissolve. But I do think this, I think Baffert has, because he's the most visible and the most famous trainer, has been made into the emblem of what's wrong with it. And I'm going to go with what Andrew Byer said about a year ago when he was on a podcast with Jay Privman and you know, I always listen to Andy Byer on these things who said, Baffert is not one of the worst offenders in this sport. Yes, he's had a lot of, you know, really bad things happen, uh, a good number of really bad things happen, but he's not one of the worst offenders in this sport when it comes to the issues of, you know, overworking, overtraining, medication, all of that. Yes, there's been a lot of bad, but I think he's, it's been, he's been made and I see it more by the public, into the emblem of what's wrong, and I just don't think that's quite right. I read something the other day. Somebody who was a spokesperson for PETA, um, the people against cruelty to animals people, that just killed Baffert personally. It just personally attacked Baffert as if it made him, as you're describing, the face of all that's bad. It seemed unfair to me. It really did. Yeah, it's too easy, and it's it's gotten. I, I've noticed that too in a few statements that they've gone kind of around the bend from where they need to go from the very valid, solid point that they have to make. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I actually I know Baffert a little bit. I've liked him in the company that we've kept. I'm happy that his horse won. I mean, I hope the horse runs into Belmont and wins again. You know, I mean, I I think it's possible that. Uh, that because people know Baffert, they know his name, they know what he looks like. If enough people say, you know, it's cleaner now than it's ever been, which is what Andy says, you know, maybe right. that changes it a little bit, but maybe not, right? I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I just think the way the current is going and the way, you know, mores change, and I just really wonder for the future. That makes sense to me. Thank you so much for being on and, and letting me just run around the block in this way. I appreciate it. Thanks, Chuck. It's great when you run around the block. Thank <laughs> you so much, Tony. Chuck Culpepper, boys and girls. We come back with email and jingle. I'm Tony Kornheiser. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show.
Bill Pitcher, the great organist Bill Pitcher from yes. Pennsylvania. Happy to have that on the show. Nigel, why don't you do the Bethesda Bagel ad? Got the bagel sandwiches today. Always very happy when that happens. Just go to BethesdaBagels.com for the location in the D.C. area nearest you. Then pop on in and you will be thrilled. Before we get to the mailbag, let me just say the night we met, I knew I needed you so. And if I had the chance, I'd never let you go. So won't you say you love me? I'll make you so proud of me. We'll make them turn their heads every place we go. This be my baby. <laughs> uh, that's Ronnie Spector singing lead on Be My Baby. That's written by her former husband. Yes. Phil Trouble, Spector. Troublesome. Yeah. Film. Yeah. Bad end. Bad end. But this is a... It's a brilliant song. It's one of the 10 best songs in the history of rock and roll. Yes. And no, nobody would... You know, you would say, oh, 20, 50, 100. It doesn't <laughs> matter. It's, it's one of the best songs ever in <laughs> rock and roll. Be My Baby. Stop. Yes. <laughs> Thanks to our guests today, Michael Wilbon and Chuck Culpepper. Thanks to our sponsors, Priceline, HelloFresh, Simply Safe. Remember, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Odyssey. If you get the show through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. Um, Hot Pink Hangover, which does one of the great mailbag themes and broke up a couple of years ago. Here's news from Matt Wells in St. Paul, Minnesota. Hot Pink Hangover returns to the stage for an epic reunion concert. Get ready to paint the town pink <laughs> with a night of laser lights, neon wigs, and all your favorite Hot Pink Hangover songs. See you in Minneapolis in August. Is it a one night only? I believe it's one night only, yes. Going to be Good. a tough drive for us. Good. Yeah, we're not going, but it's... But we're happy that they're doing that. Maybe this will lead to a tour. Who yeah. knows? You'll be blushing from home. <laughs> from Andrew Ross in Tucson, Arizona, on Thursday's show during your conversation with Sansi. You predicted Chris Sanger would shoot 165 over Thursday and Friday, and I had parenthetically and not make the cut, of course. Uh, as Scott Van Pelt said to me off air, he'll shoot a million. Yeah. <laughs> Sanger shot 165 over Thursday and Friday and finished DFL. Yeah. It's okay. It's all right. It's all right. He made it. Yes. It's great. It's wonderful yes. for Woodstock. It's wonderful. While you're at it, Nostradamus, could you tell us how many points LeBron is going to score tonight in game four? I have no idea, but... That series and the other series, they're both garbage. They're garbage. No reason to watch. Um, from Mizzou Runner, that's all it says. Is it at all ironic that our favorite technophobe bemoaned the fall of Eastman Kodak? Did you know that an engineer at Kodak developed the first digital camera in 1975, but executives at the company were worried about the impact on their film business? I use this fear of change case history frequently, almost as much as it's not personal, Sonny. It's strictly business. Thanks for the laughs. Oh, it's Carl. From Ponta Vedra Beach, the home of the fifth major and best par three in golf. The home of the most famous par three in golf, not necessarily the best. <laughs> and there is no fifth major. There's four majors. <laughs> That's how it works. Sam Davidson, Simsbury, Connecticut, which is right near Bristol. Simsbury Open. As a 30-year listener, I love you and your show, but you blew it and dragged Sansy down with you. The Polaroid camera invented by Edwin Land was introduced in 1947. He was from MIT and his company was in the Boston area. George Eastman invented the Kodak camera, which was introduced in 1888. His Eastman Kodak Corporation is what made Rochester an important city. While relying on your memory, stick to rock and roll lyrics. I am chastened by that. <laughs> Allen in Falmouth, Massachusetts, not far enough from Revere. <laughs> I used to live near Malton, New Jersey, and go to the same Wegmans as Sansy's sister. Connective tissue, baby. <laughs> Pat, Pat from Olney. Mr. Tony, the white and red hot that you and Steve Sands talked about are available at the Wegmans in Germantown, Maryland. Eat them all the time. Yeah, Mark Tui cooked those for me, the white hot dogs, the pork hot dogs. This is a long one. Wow, this is a long one from a loyal little in Tokyo, Jerry in Tokyo. 
I really enjoyed your Thursday show when you talked about Wegman's supermarket and Danny Wegman being a friend of your close friend, Mark. I'm also proud to call Danny Wegman a friend of mine, though not a close friend. The Wegman story is a fascinating one. It was not founded by Danny Wegman, but really took off under Danny's leadership. The company is founded in 1916 by Danny's grandparents and were then known as the Rochester Fruit and Vegetable Company. Danny's father, Robert, and later Danny eventually took it over. Now Danny's daughter, Colleen, is the CEO, and his other daughter, Nicole, is a senior executive as well. Wegmans is consistently rated as one of the best places to work. They're still privately owned, have a tremendous family culture in all of their stores. I have walked the stores with Danny and was amazed by the love he has for his associates and associates and the love they all have for Wegmans. Wegmans products were also prominently featured in the fictional show The Office. I didn't know that because I never watched that. I watched the British one. I watched that. I, d- I did not notice that either. Based on Scranton, Pennsylvania, but filmed in Hollywood. As to the white hot dog that Sansy loves, it is delicious. It's a combination of beef, veal, and pork. It is white because it is uncured and unsmoked. Perhaps Butcher Box can get you some of that. As a loyal little, I always try to support the sponsors of the show. However, as a six-foot, two-person, with size 13 feet living in Tokyo, it is not only difficult to find your sponsor's products locally, but even harder to find my size, but I try my best. MeUndies, I just ordered via the podcast website link. <laughs> they charge $12 for shipping to Japan, but I got the 20% TK discount. I've used the code, people, Grammarly. I have, uh, I have SeatGeek. I sometimes use tickets to events. Uh, but Trade Coffee, Framebridge, Indochinos, and Butcher Box are no dice in Japan. I'm a runner. The good news is I was able to find a U.S. store to ship a pair of size 13 Hoka One One Bondi X running <laughs> shoes to Japan. I'm looking forward to my next run. For as much airtime as you have given them, Hoka should be a show sponsor. Tell Michael. The Japanese woman to whom I'm related by marriage is a oh, woman is a bilingual professional tour guide. So we have access to anywhere. I'd be happy to host you and Michael for a round of golf at the famed Kawana Mount Fuji course. That is fame. That's the one that Bill Murray takes a swing at. Right. On Mount Fuji in the background. Yeah. The only drawbacks being we're 7,000 miles away and you can't drive to get there. Plus, you have to walk this course. Thanks for all the laughs. Isn't that nice? Jeff Barger, who emails us a lot in Hillsborough, North Carolina. When is Blossom Enrod submitting music to the show? <laughs> I'll hang up and listen. <laughs> Ronnie Newmeyer. Blossom Enrod sounds like she should be Canasta Partners with Edith Saliza. Maybe you can introduce them. <laughs> Thank you, Ronnie. Jason Blazer from Lake Orion or Lake Orion, Michigan. When One you send two. Michael out for some dirt and about 10 plants, you should I got send a voicemail him for that. to the nail store. I bet they have these things there. <laughs> My efforts earlier were not enough for you. <laughs> And now geraniums are added to the list. John Buchanan in Annapolis. This podcast may Start stink, the Home Depot music. <laughs> but it's not lacking for inspiration. Look for my new band, Blossom End Rot, to play some of your favorite rock and pop covers coming to a town near you. Ken Williams. Blossom End Rot is often caused by a lack of calcium in the soil. To prevent this, save all of your eggshells. Crush them and add around the base of the plant. To prevent birds taking your tomatoes, as soon as the plant is large enough and before the first blooms, hang a few plain red Christmas tree ball ornaments from the plants. Birds will peck these and realize they aren't food. Leave these on all summer and the birds will leave your tomatoes alone. Can I be the official personal, can I be the official personal chef in Birmingham, Alabama of the Tony Corners? Sure. Don't believe that position's sure. been taken. Luckily, we have a lot of leftover ornaments. <laughs> yeah, we do. We do. Um, Johnny Chafkin in Mount Pleasant or Chafkin in Mount Pleasant, D.C. A grandpa playing in a vegetable garden with his grandson. A man with a son named Michael who's deeply involved in the family business. <laughs> what could go wrong? <laughs> From Bobby Godfrey. There's a new kid in my son's class at preschool, at preschool named Apollonia. 
Needless to say, we will not be carpooling <laughs> with her. That's funny. You're out on your bike tonight, everyone. Do wear white. You're slouching again, Ted. <laughs>
Kill them with kindness Follow your heart Be afraid Do it anyway And always push on the stars Don't sweat the small stuff Let go of the past No, it's okay To have bad days Cause they never last Don't be perfect Just be real Don't hold too tight to the wheel Love yourself enough to heal Make the most of precious time Always laugh more than you cry God knows I might not get it right But that's what I'm trying to leave behind That's what I'm trying to leave behind Stay in the moment Be willing to learn Go see the unseen Don't leave no stone unturned Don't be perfect, just be real Don't hold too tight to the wheel Love yourself enough to heal Make the most of precious time Always laugh more than you cry God knows I might not That's what I'm trying to leave behind. That's what I'm trying to leave behind. That's what I'm trying to leave behind. Don't be perfect, just be real. And don't hold too tight to the wheel. Love yourself enough to heal. Make the most of precious time and always laugh more than you cry. That's what I'm trying. That's what I'm trying.